Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid. If you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Huh? Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew K. Knutson, and this is AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 63, Bob Fosse's Cabaret. Willkommen, Herr Dahl. Bienvenue, Monsieur Dahl. Uh, welcome, Mr. Dahl. <laughs> it's it's Herr Detlef, please. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, so Cabaret, Matt. Uh, Well-known movie, obviously. Uh, it is a movie I had never seen. Oh, that's exciting. I have uh, not delved deep into the Fosse lore. I don't know much about him. I didn't watch the miniseries, so I came into this one pretty goddamn blind. I'm guessing your uh, entry into this film is a little bit different. I'm a uh, I'm a student of the Fosse verse, let's say. No, I'm just uh, I'm a Fosse super fan, at least as far as his film work. You know, I've seen Cabaret a couple times on the stage. Uh, my younger sister, who's an actress. Uh, she starred as Sally Bowles in Cabaret when she was in college, so I got the privilege of seeing that. I saw the Sam Mendes revival in whatever that was, 97, 98, something like that, right before American Beauty. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, not probably not the one that he... He probably wasn't directing the the touring version, but he it was like the one based on his choreography and stuff. I saw the just the straight-up Fosse musical that Anne Reinking and Gwen Verdon created after Bob's death. I saw it at the Paramount Theater in Seattle, probably in the late 90s as well, something like that. Is that like a just a Fosse jukebox musical? Type exactly. Thing? That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it basically just cherry picks some of the most important and innovative um, sequences from his career. You know, grab something from, all, something from all that jazz and something from Cabaret and something from Chicago and something from Pippin and yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But I'm not nearly as much of a student of the stage as I am of cinema, of course, so... My fascination slash obsession with the man definitely involves the five films that he directed. He only made five theatrical features. All of them are very interesting. Three of them I consider to be just straight up masterpieces. The last time we talked AFI, I think I actually misspoke and said that he had made four masterpieces in the 70s. That's wrong. He only made three films in the 70s. Cabaret. Lenny and um, and all that jazz, which I think is his best film. So that that leaves out Sweet Charity, which was made in 1969, which is a fantastic movie, very underrated. Shirley MacLaine's wonderful in it. 
features the very famous um, Hey Big Spender sequence. But, you know, maybe Masterpiece is, is a little strong for that one. It was a big <laughs> flop, <laughs> infamously a pretty big flop, you know, a huge hit on the stage. And then the movie was a big flop. So I think Fosse actually had to work really, really hard to get the gig for Cabaret because I think he was a little bit, he was in kind of in director's jail at that point in 1970, 1971-ish. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, was having no trouble finding work on the stage, but I, I get I get the impression from my research and from watching the Fosse Verdon uh, miniseries that uh, he was itching to get back behind the camera, and I I really feel like you know because of the guy's personality and because he was such kind of like a megalomaniacal sort of power hungry dude who just wanted to control every single aspect of everything. Cinema yeah. probably was extraordinarily appealing to him, right? Because he was able to control <laughs> yeah. what people were looking at in ways that he couldn't do on the stage, right? Did he ever like write anything or he was just he just adapted things onto onto the stage, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he was probably, you know, writing throughout his career and probably doing a lot of stuff uncredited. I mean, if you watch, you know, like he has a he has a writing credit on all that jazz and how could he not? I mean, it's clearly autobiographical, right? Yeah. But he was working with a guy named Robert Allen Arthur. And if you believe the Lord that the, um, that the miniseries is sort of reinforcing, it seems like his buddy, Patty Chayefsky may have also contributed to that film. <laughs> all right. So, but no, I mean, he's certainly not thought of for his screenwriting as much as he is for his direction and choreography. And so his, his expertise, the, the reason he is Bob Fosse is, his ability to choreograph, his ability to interpret musicals in interesting ways. I mean, as a Fosse fight here, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure this all out. Yeah, I think he was a true visionary. Like, I really think he understood, like, his his interest in anatomy, his interest in editing, his interest in geometry. Like, I just, I'm certainly no expert in the realm of, of choreography or even, you know, stagecraft. I just, I kind of think when it comes to dance, there's before Fosse and there's after Fosse, right? So, so let, 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 let me stop you there. What What is that... What does that mean? Like, what did he bring that changed everything? All right, I'm going to read you and read you a little something here because I think this this will hopefully answer your question insofar as my interests and my fascination with the guy. So, Bob Fosse might be the single greatest interpretive artist to master the challenging art of adaptation from stage to screen. He was a genius in both mediums because he's kind of an Eisensteinian expert in his understanding of editorial patterns and the intellectual montage. Action filmmakers should and probably do look to his musical numbers and his cutting rhythms because he cuts his dance numbers like car chases or fight scenes. Angles, vectors, joints, intersections, geometry, shoulders, hips, elbows, ankles, wrists. Everything is visceral. Everything is physical. Everything is violent. Everything is sexual. And it's all absolutely beautiful and grotesque and exciting as hell. Okay. You know who wrote that? Who? Uh, some asshole named Matt in an essay entitled Face First Fosse. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> You just quoted yourself. That's fucking... Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I wrote an essay in 2017 when I was at Columbia about Bob Fosse, and uh, that to me really just sort of like encapsulates everything I I think about the man's genius. Because I think that he choreographed the way that great action filmmakers cut action sequences. But I think he figured out a way to do it on the stage with hips and elbows 
and ankles. Sure. And so to me, it was the logical next step that he was able to adapt that kind of, you know, visceral energy into a cinematic setting. We're saying basically pre-Fosse, musicals that have been adapted to screen and, you know, many famous ones relied mostly on sort of, you know, the one static sort of long shot to keep all the choreography in the frame. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, he certainly wasn't the first musical director to really lean into the uh, sort of editorial possibilities of it all. But yeah. um, but I think your point is well taken in terms of how so many classical musicals, including those of Fosse's uh, hero, Fred Astaire, did tend to kind of stand back and let Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers kind of do their thing and not cut away. You know, the way that, you know, the John Wick films in the last few years have really emphasized the role of the of the stuntman and the ability to, you know, yeah. like actually watching the physicality of this stuff as opposed to cutting away from it. John Wick is, is antithetical to the the born identity school of action filming. Exactly right. And, and it's not necessarily that one is better than the other. They're just different approaches. And I just think it's so mm-hmm. interesting that because of the way that Fosse choreographed, cutting patterns are so effective when he, when he moves into film. You know, like he's mm-hmm. able to actually not necessarily always cut on the movement, but he always knows exactly where to cut to emphasize what's in the frame at any given time. Right. And it's all about mm-hmm. geometry. Like his his uh, dance sequences are just so graphic. So if you look at something like that, where Fosse is like really emphasizing the, the cutting patterns as opposed to, you know, films like La La Land, for example, which want to step back and just kind of like let the dancers do their thing and really want to just emphasize the fact that we're, we're watching this all in one unbroken take. They're just different approaches, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also interesting to kind of look at the approach of the so-called integrated musical as opposed to the backstage musical, right? You know what the difference between those two is? I forget the terms that we learned in uh, freshman music class, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like <laughs> Cabaret, the, the musical numbers are actually happening in the world of uh, the movie. And then the other way is like La La Land, people breaking out into song in normal day-to-day life. If you got the integrated version, it's people are just b- bursting into song, whereas the backstage musical, we're uh, experiencing the musical numbers performed in a theatrical environment. Diagen- Diagestic versus non-diagestic? Is it, am I right there? Uh, diegetic. Diagestic yeah. has to do with your stomach. <laughs> Probably. Uh, yeah. uh, if that's not a real term, we should make it a term. <laughs> yeah. I'm having a diagestic rupture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Posse once said that uh, the time to sing is when your emotional level is too high to just speak anymore and the time to dance is when your emotions are just too strong to only sing about how you feel and so the idea you know a lot of people find musicals to be ridiculous because people don't break into song in the middle of their daily lives normally you could say that about nine out of ten things that happen in a movie scene right (laughs) i mean to me i i i this is just personal opinion i don't really care about realism i don't really care about verisimilitude i don't I don't actually want movies to be realistic. So in terms of my own proclivities, I like cinema that is cinematic. I like cinema that is theatrical. So I think that's part of the reason that I respond so much to musicals. That's why I adore musicals so much, because to me, they seem cinematic. And I think Fosse really understood the power of that. But I think he found Cabaret to be an interesting challenge because he was going to be able to do it in a in a backstage context, right? He was going to be able to explore 
more realistic, you know, historical themes while still allowing his actors to burst into song in a cabaret environment. Yeah. So do you think he was attracted or wanted to do cabaret? Because, I mean, this was an adaptation of a, of a known musical, right? Did he want to do this because of sort of the more political, transgressive themes in the in the movie? Yeah, that's the impression that I get. I mean, again, he sort of had to work very hard to convince the producers to give him this job coming off of the flop that was Sweet Charity. But I think he knew he was the right person for the job. Like, I think he knew... He had the capacity to do this. I assume you've seen this movie a dozen times, a couple dozen times. Yeah, many What's times. What's your sort of relationship with it? And- not on the original AFI list, so it was not on my radar at that point. I, I think I probably saw all that jazz first. I was probably too young when I first saw it, but it had an enormous effect on me. You know, there's quite a bit of nudity in that film, and it's an even darker subject matter. Well, maybe not darker than the coming of the Nazis, but it's a pretty darn dark subject matter. It's autobiographical. It ends with a man, you know, having a heart attack and turning his heart attack into a musical number. (laughs) So it wasn't like something that was playing in our house when I was growing up because it's not the kind of movie, you know, my mom was way into musicals, but she certainly wasn't, you know, she was putting on Oklahoma and, you know, Carousel and South Pacific (laughs) and the Music Man and stuff. Cabaret wasn't playing in our household. And yet it had, you know, I'd seen parts of it. I'd seen, you know, certain musical numbers pop up and, you know, that's entertainment or whatever. So the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, yes, this this makes total sense. Like, I feel like I've seen this somewhere before. And it was the non-musical stuff that really took me by surprise. It's a captivating story and, you know, the sort of background oncoming dread of Nazism lends quite a bit of gravitas to the whole proceedings. Yeah, as far as musical goes, probably one of the stronger sort of non-musical side stories that, that we've seen. Coming into it, I I didn't really know what to expect. You know, this, this sort of genre is not really on my radar. So you'd never seen it performed on the stage? No, I'd never seen it performed on the stage. I haven't had too much Liza Minnelli outside of you know, Arrested Development in my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is her character in this movie, uh, what's her name? Sorry, off the top of my head. Sally Bowles. Sally Bowles. People who love this movie just fucking hate me right now, I'm sure. She's got to be like the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl, right? <laughs> That's kind of interesting. Like the first one. Well, I mean, her, it, her opening scenes with Michael York are, are, are just to a T. Yeah, or is he the Manic Pixie Dream bisexual boy to her, if, if you look at it from that perspective? Um, yeah, he, he comes into her life and really turns things upside down. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe you're just, uh, maybe it's just the Pixie haircut that you're responding to. She's she's quirky. Come she's on. quirky, yeah. Yeah, she might be the original, the original quirky girl. Yeah, this is really a very iconic character and i think it speaks volumes that so many of our most exciting young actresses have played this part on the stage over the years right like michelle williams who plays you know gwen verdon in the aforementioned miniseries sort of got that role because she had a very successful run as sally bowles emma stone probably got the role in la la land because she was in cabaret at the time and damien chazelle went to go see her perform as sally bowles as proof that she could sing and dance it's just one of those characters that's just very like sort of demonstrative of you know of your acting and singing and dancing ability and that's why i think so many actors just wrap their arms and legs around this role and liza minnelli really kind of hit it out of the park right i mean she basically was sort of untested at this point she'd only made a few films i mean she obviously comes from hollywood royalty she's judy garland vincent minnelli's daughter but she'd only made a handful of films her second film the sterile cuckoo uh, which is (laughs) alan pacula's directorial debut Liza Minnelli was Oscar nominated for that movie at 24 years old for Best Actress, which is pretty crazy. Two films later, she gets Cabaret 
and she wins Best Actress, right? She hasn't been Oscar nominated since. Up to that point, she was pretty much just thought of as as a stage actress and honestly has really kind of split her time between the stage, the screen, and television ever since. I mean, the exception of maybe, you know, the Arthur films and New York, New York, she isn't really thought of as a big movie star, right? You know, like you said, a certain no. a certain generation thinks of her from Arrested Development. A certain generation maybe even think of her as like Liza with a Z. But I wouldn't, you know, necessarily call her a, a you know capital M movie star. You know, there was a moment there after Cabaret, after she won an Oscar, when she probably had the potential to go that direction. But it seemed like she wanted to kind of diversify. So you think you think her career trajectory was mostly her choice that she really felt the stage calling, and maybe she didn't have much left to prove <laughs> on film after such a you know dynamite first couple movies. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, she she uh, she certainly had her um, alcoholism and substance abuse issues to to deal with over the years, which uh, she of course inherited from her mother, who also dealt with a lot of the same issues. Uh, it's interesting. In my research, came to find that Judy Garland was also only nominated for two Oscars in her career. She didn't receive her first Oscar nomination until she was thirty three. Do you know what film she was nominated for? I'll give you a hint. It was remade last year. Oh boy. Uh, remade last year. Been re- been remade many times. Oh, A Star's Born. There you go. So she was nominated for A Star's Born when she was 33. Now, she did get an honorary Oscar for her work in um, The Wizard of Oz when she was 17, but she never actually won a competitive Oscar. And I'm I, I'm sure, knowing what I know of Judy Garland, that she probably resented her daughter for her entire life. <laughs> the fact what that is that she... honorary Oscar about? It was just, it, I think it, they called it like impressive performance by a young actor or something it was just like hey isn't judy garland amazing in the wizard of oz she's 17 years old let's give her on you know shirley temple won one of those as you know got one of those as well so yeah i mean liza minnelli has just had a really interesting career and it's exciting that she's kind of still out there doing her thing she's so good in arrest development she's so funny you know it seemed like stunt casting when she first popped up in that first season but she was really doing something i think kind of special in that in that show and she's fucking iconic in this movie right i mean she she really like (laughs) She's the definition of iconic when she's on that stage with that amazing haircut and the bowler cap. She absolutely is. I gotta be honest though, Matt. People are gonna think I'm an asshole, but I, you know, I need to see this movie again, but I didn't really, uh, I didn't love it. Didn't respond to it? And part of that is I'm just not a musical guy. You know, I I like music, but I just, you know, I've never responded too well to musicals that aren't written by uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. (laughs) I think the first thing for me is that I really only enjoyed maybe two of the songs in the movie. Okay. And I feel like, what's the first one? Uh, I think it's just called Vilcommon, right? So I I, kind of like that one. I like Mine Air. Yep. I also think like the most effective musical moment is the sort of Nazi patriotism song out of that picnic or whatever. Yeah, uh, tomorrow. What is tomorrow it? belongs uh, to me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it, you you mentioned diegetic and non-diegetic earlier. No, everything is diegetic. Sorry. Yeah, everything's diegetic, but that's the only song that does not adhere to the backstage musical format, right? It's the only one that occurs yes. outside of the cabaret. Indeed. And it's the only song not performed by Sally Bowles, the MC, or the cabaret girls. Yeah, and it is fucking chilling. It is, it's truly. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few of those sequences, right? I mean, this this is a movie about the rise of, you know, Nazism, about the rise. <laughs> I mean, it takes place in Weimar, Germany in 1931, I think. And there is just the, you know, the film ends with with the swastikas coming into focus. Is it the subject matter that you were alienated by, turned off by? Yeah, maybe that's part of it. I, I, again, I mean, if you take away 
the music from the musical. I respected the sort of the transgressive nature of it. Uh, I respected sort of the juxtaposition. But at the end of the day, it just felt kind of melodramatic, I guess. And if you take away the all the music, I'm not sure this movie is like a stone cold classic, right? Yes. If if you if you just focused on the non musical sections, I don't think it works dramatic. I mean, I think it works logically, but I don't think it, it would be particularly effective dramatically. I think you need yeah, so- that whole. I mean, it, it's all about these people sort of like frolicking in this cabaret and almost turning a blind eye to what's going on outside, right? That's the whole point. I, I was looking at you know trying to figure out what I thought the best line of dialogue from the whole film is. And you could go to, you know, Vilcom and Beyond Venue Welcome, or you could go to Life as a Cabaret, old chum, come to the cabaret. But the one that <laughs> the one that really stood out to me, even though it's not particularly exciting, is when uh, the MC sings, leave your troubles outside. Life is disappointing. Forget it. They're basically saying, you know, hey, fascism may be rising outside, but in here, everything is beautiful, right? The women are beautiful. Yeah. Even the orchestra is beautiful. I mean, it's, there's really a sense of um, like de- a sense of denial, right? A sense of denial kind of like hangs over this entire film until it's too late. Yeah, exactly. I mean that's. I mean, Sally Bowles is kind of in a lot of ways defined by denial, right? I mean, all she yeah, yeah. what she's doing for the entire film is she's she's just in she she's in a con. I mean, she's unbelievably optimistic in that she thinks it's all going to turn out okay. She thinks she's going to be an inc- a successful actress that she's going to fall in love that everything's going to work out, and that's not how life works. Yeah, and so it is sort of a melancholic tone that this movie strikes, and I I do think Fosse does a good job of amping up that feeling of dread as the movie goes along. Yep. Again, at the end of the day, I'm not sure it had had enough, you know, sort of story to really bring me in. But, you know, it was my first view and I'll give it another watch. Do you have a sense of how much the subject matter and the transgressiveness had to do with this movie becoming such a classic? Was was that sort of part of it? I think so. I, I think the fact that this was, you know, I don't know if it was the first quote unquote dark, you know, musical to deal with a dark subject matter. You know, there's pretty dark stuff in Showboat, for example. But the fact that this film was dealing with this subject matter that Fosse was approaching it. And like you said, such a transgressive manner and by dark, I mean in subject matter, but also photographically, right? Like there's just Mm -hmm. something very bold about the way that Fosse chooses to, to shoot and the way that he chooses to approach these dance numbers, even even the set design of the the, the cabaret itself, sure, is, you know, it, it could have been you know more sheeny and glossy than it, than it was. And I think that was absolutely the right choice. Yeah, it seems almost intentionally. It's not just intentionally trashy, but it almost seems intentionally intimate, right? Like yeah. there's something kind of small and, and maybe even kind of cramped about it. And he shoots it like that, and he shoots it from these very these, these angles that kind of make everything seem a little bit grotesque. Yeah, that's obviously intentional, but I think that probably would have seemed pretty radical in 1970. One right, just having come come mm-hmm. off of the, I'm, I'm sorry, 1972. We're only a few years off of kind of like the end of the golden age of musicals, right? Like we talked about, you know, something like Paint Your Wagon recently, and the, <laughs> the, those 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 big budget musicals that are so just bubbly and kind of effervescent. And he's really bringing this down to the ground level where everything is kind of like sweaty and grotesque and a little bit off-putting because yeah. he wants to emphasize what's hiding in the shadows, right? And he wants yeah, to juxtapose absolutely. a really silly. A musical number involving Lederhosen with a guy getting, you know, with with a, a Jewish guy getting assaulted and beaten up in a back alley, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. just that's just a moment where I just watching that scene. I'm just like, it's almost like you can see Fosse sort of mastering how to become, you know, he, he's mastering how to transition from the stage to the screen almost in real time in that scene. And I and I imagine too, just you know, on a, on a surface level, that the sort of overt homosexual themes were the the musical theater 
fans probably responded quite a bit to that, you know, in a major motion picture. And, you know, I imagine that coupled with, like I said, the just the darker themes of the plot made this something that was impossible to ignore. Probably part of the reason why it became the hit that it was. Yeah, I mean, the, the film is sort of like a classic, you know, I guess a classic of homosexual cinema. Uh, because of the nature of, you know, like uh, the Michael York character is obviously openly bisexual. The MC character is, is you know, is very androgynous in his own way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recently and about, you know, the end of the 60s and the coming of the, of, of um, you know, the new Hollywood movement. And this is smack dab in the middle of that, right? This is 72. Yeah. So we're a couple years off the Manson murders and Woodstock and Altamont and all that stuff. And this is the year after Clockwork Orange and uh, French Connection. And so things are getting darker. Things are getting more violent. Things are getting weirder. Things are getting, you know, sort of coke influenced, right? Yeah. So this is this is the coming of this is the coming of the darker '70s cinema. And without a film like this, you obviously don't get all that jazz, or eventually Chicago, which doesn't come until 2002. But you know, that's because Fosse obviously died in the in the '80s and never was able to make that film. And also because he apparently was always sort of dismissive of that subject matter. If you believe the miniseries. He never even wanted to direct that show, and Gwen Verdon basically had to talk him into it, which is interesting because it's like one of his most iconic pieces of intellectual property, at least in yeah. terms of how he staged the musical numbers and stuff. But you know, if it wasn't for this film, you also probably don't get the Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? Yeah, absolutely. you know, I really, I can feel the seeds. You know, I really feel like Richard O'Brien was probably sitting in a movie theater in London in 1972. I don't know this for a fact, but I have to imagine that he was probably influenced by this when he first saw it. it probably influenced him to certain elements of the Rocky Horror Picture Show that were influenced. By this, I mean, and this movie won a crazy amount of Oscars. I mean, Fosse won for director. It didn't win for best picture, but Liza Minnelli won, Joel Grey won, best cinematography, editing, original song, art direction, sound. So eight Oscars, pretty big haul. That's the most a film has ever won without winning best picture. That's crazy. What won best picture that year? <laughs> Godfather two. Godfather one. Godfather one. Seventy two. Seventy two. So Fosse famously beats Coppola in the best director yeah. category, right? That's a fun. Mm-hmm. That's a fun piece of trivia. Uh, in 1972, well, I guess in 1973, because it'd be the year a year later. So in 1973, Fosse wins an Oscar for directing Cabaret, Tony for directing and choreographing Pippin, and an Emmy for directing Liza with a Z with Liza Minnelli. Okay. So he he gets he's three out of four towards an EGOT. He never won uh, he never won his Grammy, unfortunately. No, that's too bad. But but he won all three of those in one year, which is pretty damn unprecedented. So I mean, it's truly a guy considering that he's coming off of the failure of Sweet Charity. Uh, he really hits his stride in 1972, 1973. He's flying real high that year. Uh, you know, The Godfather's a classic, and has that age badly that Coppola didn't win for The Godfather. I mean. I'm just happy that Fosse has an Oscar. I mean, Coppola was going to win two years later for Godfather Part Two, which I actually think is a superior film. That might be a somewhat unfashionable opinion. But, no, it's, uh, it's pretty fashionable, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think this movie's amazing, but I do think the best is yet to come. Like, I really feel like all that jazz is, you know, his, his autobiographical film is his masterpiece and also carries with it a lot of this interesting sort of Fellini baggage because all that jazz is basically a remake of uh, Eight and a Half. Mm-hmm. And that's, and it's, there's an interesting bookend to that because Sweet Charity is a remake of Knights of Cabiria. Fosse's clearly like a student of Fellini. He's clearly obsessed with Fellini. And I really feel like so many of the faces, like so many of the, the casting choices in this film and the way that he lingers on these strange, oftentimes grotesque faces in the frame is very, it's very reminiscent of the way that Fellini would shoot faces. 
right? Like mm-hmm. all the people and they, like every time he cuts to the audience and apparently a lot of people in that audience are actual, like just people they were pulling off the street or apocryphally prostitutes that Fosse gotcha. was just, yeah, because he was spending quite a <laughs> bit of time in brothels. This movie actually shot in West Berlin, which is crazy considering how much of it is interior, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know why they had to schlep all the way to West Berlin to shoot this movie, but they did. And he obviously was a party boy and spending a lot of time in uh in the Berlin brothels and was bringing a lot of those women to the set because they look so authentic, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the right thing to so, do. He's yeah. just doing so, his I mean, research. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, he's, it's, it's, yeah, it's a true casting couch. Yeah. There's just something about the authenticity of this and it just, you know, it really speaks to the time period. It speaks to where Fosse was and it just speaks to a new approach to a genre that people probably thought was pretty pat by the end of the sixties. Right. I'm looking at AFI's top 25 movie musicals of all time. Do you know where this one ranks on that list? Well, you, you must be suggesting that it makes the list, which actually kind of surprises me. Um, well, it's, on, I have the, to it's am- on the top 100 list. I mean, of course it's going to the list right it's number five is it really wow that surprises me can you name the uh, the, the four above it i mean it's got to be singing in the rain number one um yeah. wizard of oz number three <laughs> not the king and i oh a west side story yep number two and my fair lady uh no that's number eight sound of music number four Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, I mean, just you personally, Matt, like wh- where do you rank it on your top all time musicals? I mean, it's got to be top 10 for sure. Although I keep, you know, I keep waxing all that jazz's car and that's technically a musical and I would have to rate above this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty darn high for me. I, I, I really feel like if, you know, it's just the Rosetta Stone for Fosse, right? And sure. the, I keep going back to the mine hair dance sequence in a vacuum. If you just if aliens land and you want to explain to them Bob Fosse in one three minute sequence, you just show them the mine hair scene. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's as good of a dance scene as there has ever been in the history of of musicals. Like yeah. it's just it it's just it's everything for me in terms of like how musicals can be portrayed on screen or how musical numbers can be portrayed on screen. So yeah, I guess I put it you know top ten musicals of all time. Although probably probably pretty low on that list. It's interesting you talking about the 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 way Fosse shoots dance sequences, and that's something I've never um, thought about when watching dance scenes, I guess. I mean, and I am certainly not a student of dance in any way, but I, I guess when when watching musicals, I'm, I'm always more impressed with the athleticism, I guess, or the one-takeness of, of dance scenes than I am with how they're shot or how, you know, the photography of of the body in motion. So, so I, I just wonder if, if a lot of this you're turned off of, by the by the cuttiness. I'm it. not gonna say I'm turned off by it. I'm just I'm just saying I'm I, I, I'm pretty neutral to it, and maybe it's something I should just start actively paying more attention to in my appreciation of film. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I think there's a time and a place for either. It's just you know, it's an approach like anything else. Is is there a place for you know the is there a place for John Wick? Absolutely. Is there a place for the Born Supremacy? Certainly. You know, whatever the material calls for thematically and intellectually. I think is right. And I just, I, I think that there's just something kind of like violent about the way that um, Fosse approaches this material. And I think that's right for this material. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the way that, you know, Damien Chazelle, you know, or the way that uh, Chazelle's hero, uh, Jacques Demi, you know, who would just like step back and let people sing and dance around each other. And that's fine for that kind of like, you know, very sweet, whimsical, melancholy material. But I think Fosse just wants to get all up in your face, you know, like he just he wants to fucking put a knee through the camera, (laughs) through the lens. And that's cool. And I think that's right for this. And I find it all to be terrifically 
just sexy and exciting. And I just love the way he, you know, he messes with, you know, the depth in the frame and the way that he will layer limbs throughout the frame. Like it's just, it's just exciting to watch him sort of discover this, this other gear that he has, you know, one can make the argument. He's already starting to lay the track with that in sweet charity, which again, I think is a very underrated fun movie in this. He just sort of like, he just kind of like crystallizes his cinematic approach. And then he goes and does something like Lenny shot in black and white, just Dustin Hoffman (laughs) standing on a smoky stage being Lenny Bruce. And that's a whole other thing. And then he does star 80. It's the last film he made in 83. I think definitely his worst film and a very flawed movie but also fascinating in its own way very sad and very dark but that's him sort of like you know wanting to uh, you know approach performance in a different way there's certainly no musical numbers in that movie yeah. so it's just him spreading his wings apparently the last thing he wanted to do before he died he was developing something about walter winchell and robert de niro was supposed to star in that and they were oh, wow. sort of in pre-production of it when he when he had a heart attack in washington dc and died in gwen verdon's arms in 1986 i think i don't know who walter winchell is but i'm just gonna assume he's the <laughs> donut baron <laughs> I think he was a tabloid journalist. I think he was. Uh, okay. <laughs> he was. Uh, he was a journalist. He's a broadcaster. So I like your idea better. Um, we deserve the, the the donut like the donut <laughs> version of Godfather or something. Yes, um, please. Um, so I, you know, again, I'm I'm no student in this arena. I'm not a Fosse scholar. Fossophile. Let's 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 go yeah. ahead and trademark that right here. Fossophile. Fossophile. Yes. <laughs> um, but but did his approach sort of have any influence that you know of on sort of the oncoming titan that would be MTV of sort of music video direction? Do you think you can connect the dots there? I, I really like that question and I would love to um, to kind of explore that, especially through the early, you know, the early 1980s stuff when the first few music videos come along. I mean, I think it'd be fun to sit down with, you know, whoever the titans are, Mark Romanek and, you know, Spike Jones and Chris Cunningham and, and, and see if they are influenced by his cutting patterns. I mean, I have to imagine that music video or otherwise his editorial approach and his directorial approach for that matter influenced you know scores of you know musicals and action films for decades to come i mean we don't speak about bob fossey in the same hallowed tones as we speak about scorsese and friedkin or even woody allen you know hal ashby like all these people who sort of like came of age in the 70s you rarely hear fossey lumped in with them and i think that's um that's tragic because i feel like even though he only made three films in that decade i think he was incredibly influential and it just proved that we have things like um rob marshall's chicago you know which i think is a is a flawed film but you look at that movie and you're just like, oh, yeah, Rob Marshall's just doing his best to try to honor Fosse. You know, maybe you could say channel Fosse or whatever. But he's just trying to honor something that Fosse had, you know, established decades earlier. And I think he does a pretty darn good job at that movie won Best Picture. Do, do you find it interesting or, or weird that, you know, it, it seems like not that many feature film directors have come from the stage? I mean, you have, like you said, Sam Mendes, Julie Taymor, sure. uh, Bob Fosse. But, like, it seems like it should be a more fertile sort of breeding ground for film film directors or is that sort of you know has to do with maybe the interests of those directors themselves or the reticence of Hollywood to pluck them from the stage like what why do you think that is I mean I guess you could point to guys you know Mike Nichols or uh, Sidney Lumet you know like these are guys who do you know Robert Allman like these guys who are in TV and then we're on the stage and then we're in TV you know like and these are also guys who aren't nearly as flashy and are dealing much more with non-musical stage work of course but uh, but it's it's a good question I I I I am surprised that there hasn't been more crossover from the stage 
Like you have, uh, who's the woman who directed uh, the producers? Susan yeah. Stroman. Yeah. Yeah. Y- yeah. You have these people who, you know, are incredibly successful in this arena, in this venue, in this art form, and they adapt their material to a different medium and it just isn't as effective, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I would have to presume that whoever directed uh, Hamilton, and I don't have that information in front of me, and I probably should know that. I have to imagine that this this person or these people are being courted for work in the cinema. I mean, I know that the choreographer from Hamilton is choreographing the new uh, Cats adaptation for whatever that's worth. So, all right, two we'll very overrated that... entities. Classic. We'll see. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a red hot take. Don't get me started on Hamilton. that's how big a musical hater i am interesting all right we'll have to get into that at some point so i think it happens it's just it's i guess it's kind of a surprise to how rarely you know that breakout success comes from these artists moving into to cinema so maybe that just reinforces what a unique filmmaker you know what a unique artist fossey was i mean fossey wanted to be fred astaire like he, his goal, his dream was to become a movie star, you know, and a dancer like Fred Astaire. And he never was able to really achieve that goal. Now, an argument could be made that he did something even more important, that he was even more influential than Fred Astaire. But I guarantee you to his death, Fosse probably felt like something of a failure because he wasn't able to actually achieve the one thing he wanted to do. The same way that I, I guarantee you Quentin Tarantino probably carries a bit of a chip on his shoulder because he's never been able to become the movie star that he wanted to be, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. like Tarantino wanted to be a movie star and it turned out he was a genius screenwriter and director, but he kind of did those things because he couldn't achieve real success as a movie star. But I bet you if he gave Tarantino the option to go back and, you know, if he could have Burt Reynolds' career or John Travolta's career instead of the career he has now, I bet you he might take that. I, I, I bet you he might make that deal with the devil. I bet you he would probably prefer to be a movie star than a famous film director. Kind of feel like Fosse really wanted to be a leading man, but he didn't necessarily have the face for it. He may not have had the body for it. And he started balding very, very early. <laughs> oh, man. So, and that's something that the um, that the miniseries deals with in an interesting way. I mean, Rock Sam Rockwell is such a great dancer and he's such a great, that's such great casting to put him in that role. But really early in the chronology of that story, he, his hair starts to thin. And I think that's probably pretty pretty true to life. All right. You, you got any any other final thoughts before we wrap this up? I mean, the film was originally rated X, which I think is kind of interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of films from that era, you know, Midnight Cowboy and you know, Clockwork Orange or whatever, right around that, you know, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72. I think a lot of stuff was, you know, there was a lot of something kind of reactionary about the early days of the MPAA. It's kind of crazy. I mean, it'd be rated X just for thematic reasons. Yeah. I mean, I guess there isn't any overt nudity no or overt profanity necessarily but but yeah i guess, I guess it must have seemed pretty hardcore at the time mm-hmm. you know just a number like you know two ladies or whatever the the allusions to the the homosexual relationships happening so yeah that, that is interesting it speaks to the kind of conservative nature of, of where we were in the early 1970s so the mc joel gray's character yeah he exists only on the stage you never once hear anything from him that's not sung or an ovation made on the stage right yeah he has no dialogue off stage there's only one time we see him out of quote-unquote 
character. Do you remember that scene? Do you remember the no. one time where he's not where he's not playing the character of the MC? No, I don't. Tell me. Yeah, there's just one moment where where Sally is backstage with Brian and she kind of hugs him and she's trying to convince him that she's not going to cheat on him. You know, they're 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 courting yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. this very rich guy, but she promises she promises she's going to be faithful to him and she gives him a hug and she looks over Brian's shoulder and she sees the MC in the background and he kind of just like runs his tongue along his lips. As if to say, there's no <laughs> right. way you're going to be able to be faithful, right? That's the only time when he's not playing the MC. And he won, uh, he won a Sporting Actor Oscar for this role. Pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, he, he is a striking presence anytime he's on screen. Yes, he and he originated the role on the stage, I believe. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So can you name the three, three of the four Supporting Actors who Joel Grey beat out for the Sporting Actor Oscar? I'll give you a hint. They're all from the film The Godfather. <laughs> I'm guessing it's Al Pacino. Yes. Robert Duvall. Yes. And the third one is, I guess it would be James Caan. Yes, it's James Caan. Exactly right. Yeah, okay. Al Pacino allegedly did not attend the ceremony because he was protesting category fraud. Uh, His performance reflected greater screen time than that of Marlon Brando, and uh, he believed he should have received a nomination for Best Actor in a Leading role. Yeah, they really should have put Marlon in Supporting Actor, and they would have won. (laughs) So yeah, I, I just find the whole MC thing really interesting because of the fact that that he's always in character. He's always he's always in character within the character, and the film opens and closes with him, right? So the very first image you see is him popping up in a frame, and he's looking directly at us. Uh, there's this term that we use on set, which is spiking the lens, spiking the camera, right? Which means that the actor is looking directly into the lens, which is something you ordinarily don't want actors to do. Usually, if a car- if an actor spikes the lens, you do another take, because you don't want them to break that fourth wall, right? Yeah. But this film makes a very intentional use of him speaking and singing directly at us. And, uh, and I think it's very interesting that the, the movie opens with him looking looking and singing directly at us and then as the camera starts to move back then he breaks his eyeline with the camera and looks out into the audience and then he starts to address the audience for the rest of the film he's addressing them and we're kind of just barely off the eyeline we're integrated into the audience from then on and then at the very end of the movie he finally addresses us directly again and says Auf Wiedersehen before he, before he bows and leaves the film I just think it's kind nice of interesting bookend. to book, yeah. bookend the movie with him yeah like we said Liza Minnelli obviously wins best actress and the film goes on to be a pretty huge hit 43 million dollars on a uh, 2.3 million dollar budget that's big time and Fosse and Liza Minnelli are off to the races do you have a favorite scene slash least favorite scene in the film um I don't know if I have a least favorite scene I you know I think my favorite well it's hard to call a favorite but the most effective scene to me was the the, the Nazi singing um, interesting and then before that I I think the mine air and then the very opening musical number that I referenced I think those are my two favorite uh, in cabaret musical numbers. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think mine hair is like the quintessential Bob Fosse scene. Probably my favorite in the movie. Um, I'm not crazy about the mud wrestling stuff. Oh, we can do yeah. without mud wrestling. <laughs> yeah, we don't need that. I agree yeah. with that 100%. Some people find that very sexy. Uh, women wrestling in the mud has just never never really done it for me. No, I can do without mud. No mud for me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, I think that uh, Tomorrow Belongs to Me is interesting because like you said, it is particularly chilling. And it's particularly effective. It's the first time you see somebody, you know, give the Zeke Heil. And having seen, you know, the stage version of the musical in different iterations over the years, it's always exciting to see how different directors approach that scene and in terms of how they perform it. Because it really is, uh, you know, it's obviously going to be an impactful scene, but it is quite open to interpretation. Dark, crazy, wacky musical. And I'm, I'm impressed that the AFI would put it so high. So it sounds like, from what you're saying, you don't think the film deserves to be on the list 
at all just because you didn't really respond to it and you don't think it's historically all that important. Strike it from the list. That's what I say. <laughs> All right. Not on my list. Do you think it should be a little higher, Matt? No, I like right where it is. Okay. I, I like I like it being smack dab in the middle of the list. But if I uh, could only have one or the other and I could switch it out for all that jazz right now, I would do that. I think that's a more important film, and I think that's Fosse's masterpiece. Speaking of this list, mm. uh, next on the list for us is number 62, George Lucas's American Graffiti, which should be a blast. One of my all-time favorite movies, plus I just realized that movie's number 62 on this list. Mm-hmm. That movie takes place in 1962. Well, how about that? How about that? There's a little fudging of the voting here. Just a random happenstance. All right, that's it. Um, This has been We Like Movies, AFI, Top 100 Countdown, number 63, Cabaret. Say goodbye, Matt. Auf Wiedersehen. The continent of Europe is so wide, mein Herr. Not only up and down, but side to side, mein Herr. I couldn't ever cross it if I'd tried, mein Herr. But I do what I can, inch by inch, step by step, mile by mile, man by man, by, by my farewell my it was a fine affair, but now it's over. And though I used to care, I need the open air. You're better off without me, mine hair. Don't have your eye, mine hair. I wonder why, mine hair. I've always said that I was a rover. You mustn't knit your proud. You should have known by now. You'd every cause to doubt me, mine hair. Bye-bye, my neighbor hair. I'll be the same, mine hair. I'll be the mine hair. And bye-bye. You can't speak full, mine hair. I'll live all, mine hair. You don't think me mad, saying, mine hair. Bye-bye, my neighbor By my lever hair, well my lever hair, it was a fine affair, but now it's over. And though I used to care, I need the open air, you're better off without me. You're